Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 12, Gold Diggers of 1933. The Super 70 Podcast is meant to play along with the film we are discussing. You don't have to though, and you can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the 2006 Turner Entertainment copy, which was released in a box set with 42nd Street, Dames, Gold Diggers of 1935, and Footlight Parade. You can rent it for $2.99 on YouTube or $3.99 on Amazon Prime. It is currently on Amazon on DVD for $14 and the box set for $36. If you press play on the DVD now and all digital copies now, the podcast should sync with the rest of the film. I know that some of you are just getting into film analysis. You might be perusing podcasts, looking for something interesting, and you see the Super 70 podcast. That might be interesting. Let's try that. And then you start scrolling through the films I cover, and you see Gold Diggers of 1933. What in the hell is that? And if you're still listening, let me assure you that once upon a time, I was new to film analysis. I went to a class, and I saw the syllabus, and much like you, I saw Gold Diggers of 1933, and I thought the same thing. What the hell is that? And even when I watched it, I didn't get it. I was not on that bus. It took reading the articles to see what other people see before I could watch the film again. And if you are new to this film, let me warn you, I am not a fan. I do not like this film at all, although there are things in it that I like to watch. I find this film greatly repulsive, and I'm about to share with you all of the reasons why. None of them, however, include the wonderfully talented Ginger Rogers, who starts us off with the immortal song, In the Money. Everyone knows this song, even if they don't know the movie. It's passed from person to person down through the ages. It's not on the radio, and yet people know the tune. This is the power of Hollywood. Unfortunately, that power is not always used for good. The entire purpose of this sequence is to create an explicit erotic spectacle that shows women as interchangeable with money. Ostensibly, this song is about being poor and then suddenly getting rich. You hear about bread lines and all of that, but listen to the lyrics. And then we see the landlord. We can look that guy right in the eye. We're in the money. Come on, my honey. Let's spend it. Lend it. Send it rolling, rolling, rolling around. And then later, the silver dollar has returned to the fold. With silver, you can turn your dreams to gold. And if ever you have a doubt about what the song is about, notice the girls are wearing sheer mesh dresses with a coin over their crotch. Because not only do you have to pay for pussy, it is expected that pussy is used to generate revenue. Here they are leaving a slit in the stage marked with a dollar sign, and if ever there was a male gaze in cinema, this is it. This film was made just under the Hayes office taking over Hollywood and issuing moral standards and ratings. 
So many of the women here are not wearing bras. This whole display is about to be clamped down on and Hollywood put under a very Puritan restriction using volunteers from the Catholic League. Ginger is speaking Pig Latin here, which supposedly is a language that women use to communicate to each other without a man knowing what they were saying. So not only was Gold Diggers unsurprisingly sexist in 1933, it was also very subversive. The close-up is used to accentuate the switch from English to Pig Latin and from Pig Latin to English. Look how the coin over Ginger's vagina has a floral frame around it. To break up this fantasy of women and money, the Gestapo are about to come in. I don't mean the real Gestapo, I'm just using that as a metaphor. This is 1933 after all, and Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany in January. The police come in and intrude on these women who are barely clothed and they immediately feel violated and we're supposed to think it's funny. This is comic relief in 1933. The sheriff stops the performance. You could say that he was censoring it and his goons literally strip the women of their costumes because the producers of the play have not been paying their rent and everything is going to be confiscated in order to be resold. So in a sense, they're kind of strippers. You're going to see the police here causing tension and generally in the role of the bad guy. One of the hallmarks of the Great Depression is the absolute disdain for authority. There was, top to bottom, a great disregard for anyone with any type of official or unofficial power. Whether that person was a cop or a banker, any type of authority was really met with disgust during the Depression. The crime rate, though, didn't actually increase in any significant way during the 30s, despite things being so horribly bad and despite what we see as the proliferation of crime. John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, things like that. But just like the Wild West was greatly exaggerated, so was 1930s crime. Crime would always be there, and had always been there, but it wasn't as bad as you would expect to be when half the country had a problem finding something to eat. Even though, in the very next scene, one of the girls steals milk from a neighbor. All these theaters closing would be a familiar sight back then. The first thing to suffer when you have no pocket change to spare is culture. Broadway was hit pretty bad back then. Movies were considerably cheaper and people still went to the movies because it was so cheap. But even then, between a sandwich and a movie, people would choose the sandwich. At any rate, theaters were suffering so badly that, believe it or not, the federal government got involved with the Federal Theater Project, or F. TP. And that's a rabbit hole that I don't want to go down because it involves Republicans and commies and Red Scares and genuine socialists and Orson Welles and the Cradle Will Rock controversy and all the rest of it. And it's all very interesting and great to read about and great to watch, but I want to stay on topic here. I can talk about Orson for hours, but you'd never listen. The Fleas comment here is more than just a throwaway line. There was a real problem with disease back then as fewer people could afford proper sanitation and hygiene or separate beds. Like most things in Hollywood, this is not an original story. One of the golden rules in Hollywood today is the last sequel doesn't make money. 
back in the golden age of Hollywood, they didn't really need cash in sequels so much as they tapped material thoroughly, and that's what happened here. There are a string of Gold Diggers productions dating back to 1919, when Avery Hopwood wrote The Gold Diggers, which ran for 282 performances on Broadway. The producer of that play made it into a 1923 silent film. It was again filmed as a talkie in 1929, which was not unusual. Many studios reshot existing films to milk the material with dialogue. Everyone likes to see the same thing, only better, supposedly. That film was called The Gold Diggers of Broadway, which became one of the biggest box office hits of that year. That being said, you know they will make another one. So that's what they did here with Gold Diggers of 1933, to distinguish itself from the Gold Diggers of Broadway and the Gold Diggers of 1935, to distinguish it from all other previous versions. A little bit of thievery going on here, first the milk and now the pickpocketing. Remember that society by this time, four years after the stock market crash of 1929, it's not the same society. It's hurting badly. It's in pain. There's too much to say about the Great Depression. There's so much we could never cover at all. And I'm going to speak very generally here to get the point across, so don't dwell too much on the details. There's a podcast called Food During the Great Depression by Pamela Riney Kerberg from Iowa State. It's listed under C-SPAN's Lectures in History. She talks a lot about food and what people ate and had to eat and didn't eat, etc. According to her, there was about 25% complete unemployment by 1933, and that's bad. That's triple anything we've had since then. And that's the worst, but not all of the bad news. There's another 25% that is underemployed. That means there's a lot of people who work part-time because that's all there is. There's a lot of people waking, working way under the living wage. There's a lot of people that are working, but not to their full potential and not to what they could be getting paid. And that is simply because there is no money. There is no money to buy anything and no money to borrow. And there's no money to spend. And there are very few goods to spend anything on. Consumer products are in the toilet. So the idea of the first song, We're in the Money, that's so far beyond anyone's reasoning, so far beyond anyone's capability to understand. The rich have always been less than 1%, but in the Great Depression, the rich are even fewer, and the super rich, you number less than 100 people out of a population of 100 million. Just think about that. An estimated 70,000 children in the Great Depression were homeless. Carol's getting ready for her date. Just look at how the other girls are being giddy. It's beyond giddy. This isn't slutty behavior. They're not rooting for her to get laid. They're rooting for her to go catch a millionaire. And who doesn't want to marry a millionaire? If this movie had come out a year later, the Legion of Decency, which was a Catholic protest group, would have skewered this film, and in the sequels, the costumes were toned way, way down to meet their approval. So in this film, it looks like we're claiming female sexuality, and in the next film, it looks like we're containing it. And moving from this scene to the next, you get this idea that women have to move from the loose morals of improper living to the respectability of being married, as if being married was its own social club, like a scale, a ladder to climb, 
To be married was to not be alone. And to be alone, especially as you got older, was the worst thing you could ever be or ever wind up being. The only thing worse than being alone was being poor. And if you were both, then you were really close to nothing. You were fucked. Being alone was the same as not being fertile. And I'm sure that's why our attractive pianist Dick Powell here sings winter. Let me bring the spring. Now this guy, Dick Powell, he has an amazing history in Hollywood. He could sing, he could dance, he was an actor. But he later was a producer in the 50s and he started directing movies. So here's a guy who started off doing musical comedy and numbers. And then he winds up doing the first Philip Marlowe role in Murder, My Sweet. He did some other films for RKO, which in the 50s was owned by Howard Hughes. And Hughes put up the, some money for the most famous John Wayne bomb of all time, The Conqueror in 1956. This is that weird John Wayne movie where he played Genghis Khan. It was filmed downwind of an above-ground atomic testing ground in Utah. And many, many people believed that fallout from that testing ground killed a huge section of the film crew. 220 people worked on that movie, 91 developed some form of cancer, and 46 would die by 81, so make of that what you will. Powell died of cancer by 1963, and Wayne died of cancer in 1981. Way off topic. Anyway, Dick Powell was a great guy. Notice the two doors in the background with the two women in the foreground, and I suppose that it could be two paths they could take. I don't know, I'm just making shit up sometimes. It could be too much psychoanalysis. And there's tons of that in this film. Remember that Freud was still alive when this film came out. And there are a lot of Germans and Austrians in Hollywood. The first wave would come when the Expressionists hit big in the Weimar Republic. And Hollywood was bringing them in by the bushel. But now, 1933, The Gold Diggers was shot and released in 1933. This is the beginning of the second wave of German expressionist filmmakers fleeing the Nazis. Many, many films had psychiatrists as consultants on the set, and they would be listed in the film credits. Hitchcock in particular was huge in the psychoanalysis. He actually paid for one to be on the set all the time. Listen to Trixie say that she's been off the gold standard so long. Wow, relating yourself to the gold standard. And here comes Barney looking like a million bucks, and what does he do? Looks right at a girl's ass and says, I've seen that face before. What a jackass. And they all gather around him and kiss his ass because that's how you make it on Broadway. And then he actually says he can use the girls because he'll use all the girls he's used before. Bad terminology for sure. And Dick is caught playing the piano, and in a bit of humor, he looks even better than Barney. And don't you dress your finest dark suit when you compose on the piano? It's like dressing up to fix the car, isn't it? If that's your vocation at home. So this is the torch song. And Barney actually says later that Fred and Faye would be as great as the Astaire's if they could sing and dance together, which is a hoot because Ginger's in the room. And later we find out that Barney does not actually have the money. And why? Because his financial backer reconciled with his estranged wife and she told him not to put any money on Broadway. So it's a woman's fault Barney can't give these women a job. How do you like that logic? This whole chorus line thing is obviously not new. Vaudeville did it, and it has its roots to before that. 
There were the Tiller girls in England, and the Rockettes, of course, came from St. Louis in 1925. But having beautiful women in a row isn't new at all. Russell Market, who managed the Rockettes, he told his girls they couldn't tan. He wanted them extra white. And he didn't give a shit about talent. He hired strictly based on beauty. His idea was beauty any way you could get it. You have to arrange them, fine. The tallest ones go to the center and the shortest ones go to the edge. Given the curvature of your eye, you're fooled into believing that they're all the same height. Listen to Carol in this film. What is perfection? She tells you, a six inch wrist, a 12 inch neck, a 19 and a half inch thigh, a nine inch ankle. And you better believe that there's gonna be dimensions similar to what you find in a Playboy centerfold. If you spend any time in a suburban high school, then you probably have a drill team an all-girl dancing squad, just like the Rockettes, and comes out and performs during football games and things like that, and they go to competitions, just like cheerleaders, and the whole works. And if you're good enough, like a friend of mine was, then you get scholarships and you can go to college on being a line girl. And if you excel in that college, you can not only go to work for an NCAA team as a line girl, but you can go pro, the big time, the NFL. And what NFL team is known for having the greatest cheerleaders in the drill team? The Dallas Cowboys, of course, who have the Dallas Cowgirls. Think of your chances to get on such a thing. There are tens of thousands of high schools, so hundreds of thousands of girls. How many colleges are there? Hundreds. So you're looking at thousands of line dancers. How many teams are there in the NFL? 32. What is the size of their chorus team? 20, maybe? So roughly 640 jobs unless you count the Rockettes and other entertainment groups. And girls kill themselves to make this cut. Punishing athletics and great stress, why? So they can look pretty for a man who sees them for a total of five seconds on a Sunday afternoon. This seems extreme. But what do you have in Gold Diggers? The women we see here have a choice. Showgirl or be a wife and a mother. And both of those roots look like pretty hard roads. Far apart, as Dick sings here. The Torch I Bear. Notice Barney here has an epiphany about the purpose of his musical, and he describes bread lines and rain and marching, and notice his epiphany is all about the suffering that men are going through. He doesn't say anything at all about women. And from this meeting, the pact is drawn up among the girls that they're going to act as gold diggers. Not be gold diggers, just act like them. Even though they've been stealing milk and their talk associates their own bodies with money and throwing themselves at Barney. Notice that when Barney walked in, he's a perfectly fine person, but the minute that he says he has no money, his word is dirt, and it means nothing. So he has money, and he talks like he doesn't have any, and they get upset, but when Brad shows up out of the middle of nowhere, living in this dump apartment, he appears that he has no money, despite his fine suit, but all of a sudden he can cough up 15,000 cash in the next scene, and well, it's okay for him to be a liar because he's got money. But Barney, no, he's a schemer. 
And what follows this is just amazing. Brad says he'll front the show for 10,000. And that number 10,000 is going to come back around. After all, Barney says he can make a million off of it, right? Not a bad investment. Back then, that would set you up for life. And the girls, they treat Brad like shit. They don't, they say, don't tease us. That's cruel. All that jazz because they don't believe he's got the bread. And then you cut to noon the next day. And what do you see? Those same three girls here say out loud, oh, Brad doesn't have that kind of cash. He's just putting us on. And where are they? In Barney's fucking office waiting for him to show up. So they don't believe him, but they're waiting for him for the check. And this is where they say they're only going to act like gold diggers, not actually be them. Right? Personally, I think waiting anywhere for Dick Powell to show up is perfectly justified. He's a very handsome man. But the 10,000 cash just sullies it. I hate this topic hard, but it's just so glaring a contradiction. And I don't think anyone has accused our country's history of being squeaky clean. I just want to be clear about that. But this is 1933, for crying out loud. Women gained the right to vote 13 years before. It took a constitutional amendment and states had to ratify it. So this isn't just some fly-by-night cause. Women gained serious ground in the first 20 years of the 20th century. They got suffrage. They got alcohol banned. They started the most effective anti-prostitution campaign ever waged in this country. But unfortunately, the direction was a little skewed. We see prostitution today as the failure of society to recognize the changing role of women in the modern world, the failure of society to recognize equality. But back then, women were really to blame for prostitution. Even as it was fought, they were still blamed. And it goes back to the whole argument related to drugs. There's a demand for this. How do you want to satiate a demand that's already there? I don't fucking put me in a corner and say Dylan's relating heroin and coke to pussy. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying universal prohibition of anything is most likely going to fail. Just like, say, abstinence. And while you're staring at this scene, check out the lady's hair. Most of them are shorter and they have waves. And this is after the new woman movement in the 1920s in the flapper era when a girl could go from a front parlor to the back seat, so to speak, where she was independent. And at the same time, she was seen as sexually deviant. According to Ann Douglas and Pamela Robertson, these are two types of prostitutes as far as society at this time is concerned. The first is the innocent all-American girl, and the second is the sinister polluter, obviously someone who spreads disease, right? So which one do you think is the gold digger? In this frame of mind, you forget about suffrage, you forget about equality, you forget about the industrialization or the commercialization or the greed or the immorality or the huge pay discrepancy, the glass ceiling or the wall that is the double standard. And all you're concerned with, as a viewer in 1933 is, transferring all the bias that you have about prostitutes to these women who are not prostitutes, but gold diggers. This is where the thoughts go. And when you see these girls scam for milk and wait on boys for cash, you're instantly thinking that they're keeping their needs at the front of their minds, or do you think they are more concerned about greed? 
the gold digger might be seen as a kept woman. She might be seen as a lot of things, but the one thing she definitely is, is equated to the prostitute. And who plays the gold digger? Ginger Rogers. Marilyn Monroe in How to Marry a Millionaire or Gentlemen Prefer Blondes or Madonna, like a virgin, living in a material world. The gold diggers come across in campy musicals like this one or Marilyn Monroe's entire career or Madonna's for that matter. And remember how I told you before that women were not just unemployed but underemployed? We know that to take a man's job was just unforgivable in the 1930s. There were actually laws that were passed, federal laws and state laws that forced thousands of women out of work and prevented thousands more to keep them out of work. The pay gap was not just an expectation, it was institutionalized. And you'll see the campy and gold diggers push back on all of this a bit. It'll take on some of this and insert it as camp in an effort to, well, fight the power, so to speak. And we'll get into some of that later. Let's take a detour. Alison Bechtel is an American cartoonist who wrote a comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For and won several awards for her artwork and writing. In her comic strip, Bechtel once had a discussion between two women about what movies to go see, and one of the women says... She only sees films if there meets three requirements. You'd think they'd be easy. Are you ready? Okay. Number one. Does the movie have more than one woman in it? Number two. Do these women talk to each other? And number three. When they talk to each other, do they talk about something other than a man? If the answer is no, then the film fails the Bechtel test. Now I'm going to look up my shelf right now and choose three movies at random. One. Ocean's Eleven. One woman fail two big trouble in little china two women check do they talk to each other i think they do yeah check what are they talking about jack burton me fail number three the usual suspects one woman who i think you see five minutes of screen time in fail okay now thinking about it do i have anything on my shelf that will pass this test will any given season of alias do well possibly heathers well that's not really one to go by a passion of joan of arc fail any season of agent carter is good ghost in the shell no not really yoga hosers pass so you see how hard it is to find a film that passes this test i'm going to quote a study of gender portrayals in 855 of the most financially successful U.S. films from 1950 to 2006. These films showed that there were, on average, two male characters for each female character, a ratio that remained stable over time. Female characters were portrayed as being involved in sex twice as often as the male characters, and their proportion of scenes with explicit sexual content increased over time. The Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media, yes, that Gina Davis, stated in 2014 that 120 films made worldwide from 2010 to 2013, only 31% of named characters were female, and 23% of the films had a female protagonist or co-protagonist. 
7% of directors were women. Another study looked at the 700 films from 2007 to 2014 found that only 30% of the speaking characters were female. In a 2016 analysis of screenplays of 2005 commercially successful films, Hannah Anderson and Matt Daniels found that in 82% of the films, men had two of the top three speaking roles, while a woman had the most dialogue in only 22% of films. And I'm sure that you noticed that when Brad shows up with the money, all of a sudden, petting in the park starts and the girls are lounging on pillows. At any rate, does Gold Diggers of 1933 pass the Bechtel test? Are there at least two women in it? Yes. Do they speak to each other? Yes. About something other than a man? Well, no, not really. They talk to each other a lot, that's for sure. But usually it's about the musical and they're talking about Barney or they're talking about Brad or they're talking about Faneuil. They're talking about money that comes from the three of them. Someone else who has money. And that is the key here. Who has the money? I would hazard to say that most films on the Super 70 podcast would not pass the Bechtel test. It's why I've got my fingers crossed for Captain Marvel and Ocean's 8. Now, before you get your panties in a bunch, let me throw some disqualifiers at you. Some movies won't meet this criteria simply because the plot does not allow for it. If you're shooting a movie inside a 14th century monastery, then guess what? There's not going to be any women in the monastery, or the film most likely. But that simply means you're choosing one script over another that could be more inclusive. I'm not saying you should now start disliking Die Hard because it doesn't have two women in it that speak to each other but it'd be nice if we had more female roles in general. And in the age of Wonder Woman, it'd be nice if we were on parody. And let's state the obvious. Catherine Bigelow and Patty Jenkins can't direct every film we want. We need more female directors, writers, what have you. And they also can't conform to the Bechtel test all the time. And while you're contemplating that, you can contemplate what the girl said here, that Brad lives off of $25 a week. You try living off of $25 a half day. The depression sucked. It's rather unbelievable that they have all of these subplots going on at the same time, too. First, Trixie thinks that Brad might be a bank robber, and that's where he got his money. And so that's why he won't go out on stage, because it will expose him and because he's a wanted man. Then the night of the performance, which is the next scene, the lead star has to get this. He has lumbago, and he can't go on, and everyone peer pressures Brad to go do it. Now, lumbago, if you didn't know, is a blanket term for all lower back pain. And how do they pressure Brad into going on? By telling him all those girls will have to do whatever they have to do to make ends meet if the performance is canceled. And what's the insinuation there? That's right, prostitution. So in this scene, you're gonna see a man rather stripped down, and I'd like to take a moment right before the next Busby Berkeley number to point out that this is, of course, before the Hayes Code, the Motion Picture Code, and lots of films that had already been shot or were under production when the Hayes Code went into effect we're basically given a pass. 
The Hayes Code was the set of industry moral guidelines that was applied to most United States motion pictures released by major studios from 1930 to 1968. It is also popularly known as the Hayes Code after Will H. Hayes, who was the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, or the MPPDA, from 1922 to 1945. Under Hayes' leadership, the MPPDA, later known as the Motion Picture Association of America, or the MPAA, adopted the production code in 1930 and began strictly enforcing it in 1934. So Gold Diggers, The Scarlet Empress, and tons of other movies were shot after the Hayes Code went into effect, but before they really started enforcing it by putting die-hard Catholics on the board that rated these films. The production code spelled out what was acceptable and what was unacceptable content for motion pictures produced for a public audience in the United States. A partially clothed man, by the way, here receiving a massage from another male would never have passed the Hayes Code in 1933. In fact, I think the next time a scene like that was shot was in Spartacus in 1960, and that scene was cut. We didn't see it until it was added into the remastered cut in 1990. If you watch this or even Footlight Parade, which was also released under the wire, you'll see some really striking half nudity or in the Scarlet Empress case, you'll see bare breasts. This is where Hollywood was going. They were experimenting with nudity and I dare say if someone did not stop them, you would have nude performances by the late 1940s like you had in say the mid 70s. So that type of liberation being put on hold is quite a shame. Hayes appointed Joseph Breen, the administrator from 1934 to 1954, to enforce the code in Hollywood. The film industry followed the guidelines set by the code well into the 1950s, but during this time the code began to weaken due to the combined impact of television, influence from foreign films, bold directors pushing boundaries, and intervention from the courts, including the Supreme Court. In 1968, after several years of minimal enforcement, the production code was replaced by the MPAA film rating system, which we unfortunately still have today. I lived in Canada for several years and their rating system for films, TV, and video games were all on the same scale and enforced across the board, and more fair in my opinion. It's more harsh on violence and really lacks on sex, which I think makes some sense, but I digress again. The motives the girls have here, and I'm going to get into the masquerade later, but what they say is so self-serving. Trixie actually says she doesn't care if Brad has to go to jail. The show must go on. Girls are going to starve. You know what they're going to have to do to survive? That'll be on your conscience. Put the community before yourself. And in other words, in the era of the New Deal, is this not a New Deal attitude? Wish us luck. Because in order to survive in the 30s, that's what you needed. Luck. And of course, remember, this is only four years into talkies. So you go to a musical. That was a special treat in of itself. Musicals reprised films. They're pretty rare now and not rare at all in the 1930s, but they were well-loved, that's for sure. 
Most of the first musicals were vaudevillian or they had some theme to them that stayed popular. Eddie Cantor, Al Jolson, Sophie Tucker, all of these were musical starts. We don't generally think of the Marx Brothers as being in musicals, but of course they were. Marion Davies was a fantastic comedian before her boyfriend William Randolph Hearst ruined her career with overproduced dramas. Then there was Marlena Dietrich, Buddy Rogers, Claudette Colbert, Adolph Menjot, even Joan Crawford at one point. Musicals took off quite quick and were an early depression faded, but like everything during the depression, the public got their fill or couldn't afford to get their fill and soon enough musicals started to go into decline. Gold Diggers of 1933 was made in the throes of this decline. In fact, Daryl Zanuck didn't want anyone to know what they were working on. It even had a fake production name like a lot of films do. It was called High Life. What was Return of the Jedi's fake production name? You got it. Blue Harvest. This, of course, is when tap dancing was more in vogue. Watch how quickly this devolves into really obscene behavior. And you're going to see a black couple come up, and that was really forward at the time. They're not servants. They're just there like everybody else to get their groove on. And the absurd starts to unfold pretty quick with the baby and then the cops on the roller skates. Petting in the park. And thus, Busby busts it. And we know these girls, they look great, but they're not hired on talent. Camp told us that. It doesn't matter if they can sing. It doesn't matter if they can dance or swim or whatever. It's the smiles and the gyrations. They exist, and that's all that's important to the male gaze. Man is primitive. The shot of the monkeys here is to inform us that we're all primal beings at base and all want the same thing, sex. And of course, there's music over this to hide all the imperfections that must be here. Loud music, kind of like a porno, or at least porn before Gonzo. The 70s and 80s porn that used loops, and when they overdubbed the scene just like in Hollywood films. Now watch Berkeley's camera move here, these slow drives that literally become part of the choreography. There's booms and tracks and overheads all in the same minute sometimes. For the girls to dance in sync is one thing, but they have to dance around the track and the boom while they are in motion. So not only do the girls have to be in sync, but Berkeley and his cinematographer have to navigate through this complicated weave of girls. It's not an easy thing to pull off. And some of these shots, as you can see, they look like a kaleidoscope. And just like a kaleidoscope, every time it turns, it shows a different surprise. Now, while we enjoy this, let's face it, we're enjoying Busby Berkeley. So keep in mind that the film is manipulating us, that there's two directors. If you recall our last film, The General, there were also two directors. Clyde Bruckman, who did the drama, and Buster Keaton did the action scenes. Sometimes Hollywood does this, they can pull it off, like the Coen brothers. The drama that you've been enjoying here is directed by Mervyn Leroy, and that's for the girls. They like the drama supposedly it's a soap opera and the busby berkeley numbers that's for the guys it keeps the guys in the seat if you want to go to wikipedia's gold diggers of 1933 page you'll see the posters warners used for this film and they're basically advertising the girls as strippers it gets men to come to the theater hopefully to see ginger rogers naked 
and it opens with this huge number, we're in the money, and then it switches to Leroy's drama, and then back to Berkeley. It alternates. And what's the message here? Act a little shy, all why? It's nice to know the art of getting into a girl's pants hasn't really changed that much in the last eight decades. Petting in the park is a strip tease, and here the gold diggers part company with a lot of its like-minded genre films. Usually when you see a film that's about a Broadway play or any type of opening like that, the opening of the show is the finale of the film, but not here. Here it's in the first 30 minutes. This, with the lack of male lead, gives us a very untraditional script. This snowball act is a premonition of the more complicated ending planned for The Forgotten Man. You can make all kinds of references to the balls here, which won't be too far off the mark. Watch this unbelievable shot where the ball comes into the frame and you see a pair of legs, but like anything in film, that's not just a pair of legs, it's how the legs are shot. You were literally inches away from seeing her vajayjay. And here the girls are all wooing the guys and everyone wants to get to at least third base, right? But it's not happening. And I don't know whose idea this was, but watch the girls get up to seek cover from the rain and some of them break right, then left, while it's raining and up a staircase, high heels in the rain with no railing. And you think, this is edgy so far, but when the girl starts stripping, the film really starts delving into edgy material. But again, this was material that was in demand at the time. When you look at this shot and the kid pulling on the screen, it makes you wonder how they got away with it. Watch the shot cut right before the screen reaches the crotch. There's a lot of focus on the crotch in this movie. Just because it's old doesn't mean that they don't notice those things. Right here at the level. And notice in the background, that all the benches are made out of inverted triangles. To which I say, hmm, interesting. And that's the first of several triangles you're gonna see in this film. And watch the girls come sailing down the staircase again, in high heels, with no railing. And it's a wonder no one was killed. And here the girls have stripped down to basically what? Chastity belts. So not only is there no third base, there's not even a second. Pet a little up, know what I mean, and I guess the can opener is a bit of a joke, as long as it's consensual, right? Amazing sequence. And of course, everyone is wet. And when we think of musicals today, we of course have films like La La Land or Chicago that are obviously for adults, but most musicals today are animated films with song treatments like Moana and most other Pixar films. Gold Diggers is more like La La Land. It's for adults. It's a mixture of a past that involves vaudeville, the Ziggy Field Follies, burlesque, even the circus. All of these were much more prevalent back in the days before television. Gold Diggers is more of an art film than most other musicals since there is more going on here than anywhere else. The adult topic would go right in with everything else that was popular during this time. Just like at any time, most things were for adults. Even the radio was mostly adult programming. Radio programs like 20 Million Sweethearts were adult narratives. Opening night. 
There were a lot of ideas on how to get gold diggers to the screen. There were major rewrites and huge actors were considered in turn, which is not a surprise. Warner Brothers was like every other film company in Hollywood operating at that time. They had a so-called stable of stars that they could draw from. And in many cases, the role would not be cast until the last minute with whoever was available. The stock actors were the worst used tools in the business. Peter Bogdanovich once told a story about Orson Welles when he was directing Citizen Kane in 1940. Welles needed a waiter and called the studio to get an actor, and they sent this guy who had played waiters previously. Every movie RKO had made in the past 10 years had a waiter in it, and it was this guy. And Welles recognized him and freaked out because he wanted everyone in Kane to look like it was their first film, and for many it was. So the studios would just call someone, and sometimes that day, they would just grab whoever and stick them in the movies like gold diggers. So they worked on the script, and they worked on the script, and they worked on it, and eventually they got the kind of convoluted mess you see now. Uncertain weather as the trustee of your estate, and I represent the family, and all of that crap. So the joke from the paper is that Dick goes missing right after the petting in the park sequence, so... I'm guessing he got that chastity belt off in time. Anyway, the script was still not finished when production began, and there are rumors that it was being written during production, with some scenes being written the day of shooting. And that is a disaster waiting to happen, especially since Gold Diggers had a short production schedule. They only have 45 days of principal photography. Which sounds like a lot, but not really for something this size. With the musical numbers involved, that's not a lot of time. Not for the girls to know their parts and their kicks. That's no time at all. There is a chance this rather chaotic goings-on behind the camera scenes that contributed to the quick pace of the film. If this is true, then it helped contribute to it because the film's quick pace has been cited as a factor in the film's appeal over the years. Because the film is split up between this narrative story and punctuated with these spectacular song and dance routines, it tends to speed up the pace quite a bit. Although there are some who think there aren't enough songs and this actually slows it down. And here's the familiar family threat. If you marry that girl, you won't get any inheritance. What matters really is the good story, after all. Leroy wanted this to be the grandest gold diggers film yet he wanted it to be more like a film and less like a stage act he said for me ain't always the sole criterion for selecting a film was that it had a good solid story and that it had the quality i call heart <coughs> he wanted it grand which is why it starts off with we're in the money it has value to warner brothers more than just the 300 grand they put into it Warner's has a proud tradition, and they want to keep and foster that tradition. Too bad they fucked it all up with Justice League. Like most Ivy League douchebags, this asshole drops his alma mater at every opportunity. Harvard. According to Jane Fewer, who wrote this amazing article in the film genre book, and if you can get this book, it's fantastic. It's on Amazon. But her essay on Gold Diggers, she says there are three myths going on in musicals. The myth of spontaneity, the myth of integration, and the myth of audience. 
And instead of just reading the whole essay, I'm going to try to break it down for you. Musicals are ideological products that are full of deceptions. But the audience is aware of the deceptions because they want to be fooled. These myths try to hide contradictions in the films that are unresolvable. So there are a lot of problems in Gold Diggers of 1933. Contradictions in which or in what we are introduced to and what we find out later are really happening. And we are presented with a showy piece in the middle of a depression. We are to care about the soldiers, only there aren't any soldiers playing major parts on the screen, but to fool you into making you think what you are seeing is real, you're going to see the showgirls behind the scenes, so to speak. You see Barney and what's happening behind the curtain and all of that, and you're going to see how to make a musical. So it tricks you into the idea that you're seeing truth, but there is no truth, only myth, which shouldn't surprise you. This is Hollywood. First, there's the myth of spontaneity, the idea that a musical performance and just burst out of thin air and it's joyous and to have a responsive attitude towards life. Think of how this film opened with We're in the Money and how most musicals of this era and even in the Gene Kelly numbers in the 50s, they don't need a reason to burst into song. They just do. Singing in the Rain is guilty of this and so is the Barclays of Broadway. Another one is The Bandwagon, which is visually stunning. Amazing film, but it's been attacked for its lack of narrative structure. So it's over the top happy. And you see that here with Petten in the Park. The myth of integration sells you the idea that the narrative and the musical go together, and they are invariably linked. For instance, in The Singing in the Rain, the success of the musical they put together and the final number of the film coincided with Don and Kathy getting together. This also happens in the bandwagon. In Gold Diggers, it's a triple play. The success of the musical means not just one, but all three couples get together. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to quote the short paragraph by Fewer. Everyone knows that the musical film was a mass art produced by a tiny elite for a vast and amorphous consuming public. The self-reflexive musical attempts to overcome this division through the myth of integration. It offers a vision of musical performance originating in the folk, generating love and a cooperative spirit that includes everyone in its grasp and that can conquer all obstacles. By promoting audience identification with the collectively produced shows, the myth of integration seeks to give the audience a sense of participation in the creation of the film itself. The musical film becomes a mass art that aspires to the condition of folk art produced and consumed by the same integrated community. And I'm sure you caught the joke here where Trixie says she'll just call Faneuil Fanny. I'm sure that we don't have to dissect the meaning of Fanny and really it's fitting because he's just such a big pussy. The myth of the audience means that the successful performance of the musicals will be sensitive to the needs of the audience and they will give the audience a sense of participation in the performance. That's it. In Singing in the Rain, Cosmo sings, make him laugh, and the point of view changes from Don to the audience and never returns. 
Now, honestly, all Hollywood films manipulate audience response, but the musical incorporates that response into the film itself. Just like uh, White Christmas with Rosemary Clooney. And you'll see that in all numbers and gold diggers. You even see it a practice for a pet in the park that is interrupted. And this, of course, is to tease the audience. And where is the big rich guy from? Anyone? Texas, of course. And what could they possibly have in Texas? These were the days in which to work for an oil company did not mean that you were a sinister man planning for the destruction of the earth. See how she prances around with her slip? That was the contemporary version of the thong. Patricia Mellencamp related Berkeley's numbers to Siegfried Krakauer's 1931 essay, The Mass Ornament, which links these types of routines, which were popular in the Weimar Republic too, to the capitalist production process, like Henry Ford's automated lines. And that goes to Fordism, commodities, and what Krakauer called were the American distraction factories. The cabarets were huge in the 1920s, and especially in Berlin during the Weimar period, and in Paris until Vichy. In these places, Berlin and Paris, they had large numbers of gay clubs, especially lesbian clubs. These things did not go away, despite the Hayes Code. They were just on a different continent. It does give you the impression that women were a mass-produced consumer product, used and to be used, and thrown away. And despite how pretty that looks on screen, it's very disturbing. Opening the chastity belt with a can opener is like opening any canned food product. You consume it and then you throw it away. And remember, these girls are handpicked after a national talent search. Handpicked, just like they were defined in the film, right? They have to meet a certain criterion. This whole scene is escapist, but the whole movie is escapist. Andrew Bergman said that this film... You could, you could drown your sorrows in it, in legs and, and in glitter. And is there a better way to drown? I'm not sure. Legs and glitter sounds really good. Taking boys for an expensive ride in a speakeasy, right? And did you notice by chance that Ginger is seventh in the credits? And there's this underlying assumption of what a woman is and what a woman wants that I just find repugnant. In the lyrics of the last song, Remember My Forgotten Man, it says, Ever since the world began, a woman's got to have a man. And in the beginning of the film, you see that they're stealing milk and getting fired and trying to rope in guys. And then at the end of the film, you see that it has a Hollywood ending that you would expect. And I just can't help but see that the film is saying that if a woman gives up her sexuality and takes up a family then this whole problem we're having with the Great Depression, it'll just go away. As if getting married will put milk on the table. But that's how it looks to me. Even this dude is going to shell out 75 bucks for a hat that he'll never have or appreciate. And look how pissed off the guys are. Fucking gold digger. And take a look at this Maison scene here and look at the decorations. Look at the lamps and the door and the drapes and that weird candelabra. This is not a period piece. This was meant to be contemporary. It's called Gold Diggers of 1933, after all. So everything that you see here is supposed to be upscale and current. 
even the downscale apartments. That's not supposed to make sense if you think about it. It's just supposed to look right. If you have three girls that are rooming together because they can't afford their own place, do you think they're going to have the latest trendy furniture? Of course not. And if they have a sofa, how do you think that sofa got there? How long has it been there? How long will it be there? I've had sofas for 10 years. But in order for everything to look like 1933, it has to be modern. It has to be current. You don't want Victorian dressers and nightstands in this film. That's so 1905. Even though I, I bet you many, many people had heirlooms from 1905 and still in 1933. So in fact, the furnishings in any movie you see should be a lot older. I remember my grandparents' house having all this shit in it that they bought in the 50s and 60s. And here it was, the 80s, and they thought it was antiquated. I thought it was antiquated anyway. But that's how people really live. But it doesn't work that way in film. Watch Valkyrie with Tom Cruise. The production design is brilliant, but it looks like everything in that movie was made in the 1940s, which is when that movie takes place. But really, all the furnishings would be a lot older. But that breaks the reality of what you see, and it doesn't make sense in your mind when you see it. The only way you can get away with having older films and older items in view is, is in cars. If you watch The Godfather Part 2, it's like watching a history of Detroit in the 50s. Beautiful cars. Okay, back to Lawrence and Fanuel, which is a 30s name if I ever heard one, like 1730s. And they immediately identify these girls as gold diggers without giving them a chance in hell. Lawrence even calls them a parasite. And they think so little of these girls that they don't even get their names right. Lawrence think Carol is Polly, and Trixie and Carol play on their fears of being taken for the proverbial ride, as Maude Lebowski would say. The girls put on this show when they exaggerate whatever it is they want to accentuate the idea that there are these gold diggers. And Trixie even shouts platinum when she sees Fanuel's lighter. Not gold. Are your eyes hazel? What, you can't tell? Jesus, she's close enough to him, isn't she? Of course she... Of course you see all this leaning in going on, touching knees and so forth. And watch the way Faye cuts in here between Trixie and Fanny. And Fanny starts plying the champagne. Good times, good times. In the nightclub, you'll see Carol dancing with Lawrence in what may pass as dirty dancing in 1933, and she even suggests to Lawrence that they're dancing in a vulgar way. Meanwhile, Trixie is fondling Fanuel's knee under the table, and if you don't think that means anything, then you need to see Mates Uniform, one of the last Weimar sound films ever released, which I think came out in the last months of 1932. Lots of knee stroking in that one and it was labeled the first lesbian film. Read into their names here. Mr. Peabody, Miss Fortune. That is supposed to be as different in class as it sounds. Peabody sounds like a lower class name. Fortune sounds like an upper class name, but it's reverse. Only strippers are named Mercedes and Porsche. I remember, remember what I said before about identifying two types of prostitutes, the sinister polluter and the innocent victim. That plays out here. Trixie and Carol are the sinister polluters, and Polly is playing the innocent victim. 
All of this is tongue-in-cheek, mind you, because even in pre-code days you couldn't have prostitutes. Not even 20 years later. Audrey Hepburn played a high-class call girl in Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1960. Effectively, she was a prostitute even though Hepburn herself said no one would ever buy her as a hooker. And she's right. I don't buy it. And as a result, I just don't get that movie. But here we're presented with proper casting, and Lawrence actually makes the link between acting and prostituting, which is not a new charge. That's been thrown at women for thousands of years. He says Polly isn't like the cheap and vulgar women of the theater that he knows. He even says, how did a girl like you dot, dot, dot. And you know what he's insinuating. And Polly tells him the song and dance that would fit any movie about any hooker ever. She was an orphan. Her mother was an invalid. She had to find something to do to earn money. And all she could find was this dot, dot, dot. Now, as it happens, that's all bullshit. You know, because Trixie blows her cover to us anyway, but the stereotype is so common by 1933, it's so ingrained in American society that it is parodied to the point of the campy and everyone buys it. And as long as there have been prostitutes, there have been hangovers, I think. This conversation actually kills me just because they want something doesn't mean they have to give in, does it? Well, this question is as old as Lysistrata. And by the way, who has the platinum lighter? Well, shocker, Carol has it, along with the gold and the animals. And what is Polly worried about? Whether or not she can marry Brad. And the big line here is what? I want a dog named Fanny. Wow. If my wife named a dog after me, I think I'd take the hint. Wouldn't you? So it appears by this point in the film that the audience understands what gold digging is and it understands what prostitution is and the masquerade that is going on enforces the stereotype to the point where there is no difference. So is the masquerade a success? And if it is right, and the answer is no, but the bigger question is, why do you need a masquerade at all? Why is it necessary? And this all goes back to male expectations of what women should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. You can pull all kinds of contemporary examples about Eleanor Roosevelt and how she became the first modern first lady and everything that she was and she did and all of that. Some even think she might have been gay, and that may or may not have been the case. But in the larger picture, I don't think that it matters. What matters is that today, you still have these examples, and these people are still raising bullshit objections to women trying to do not what men do, but what they want to do all by themselves. The current Prime Minister of New Zealand is the first female Prime Minister of that country, Jacinda Ardern. She's 37 years old, she's unmarried, and some in the press say, partner, has been with her a number of years, and they are expecting their first child, and the press is going knucking futz over it. As if it's the first time a woman had to juggle a full-time job and a kid at the same time. The only difference in her position is or should be, that she doesn't stand a chance of getting fired because she's pregnant, which happens more often than you think. The nice thing about Arden's example is 
she doesn't seem to be participating in the masquerade. She's not playing the part that the others want her to play. By others, I mean men, although some women find it hard to break out of the mold of expectation, too. But the masquerade is what we are used to. Hillary Clinton is subject of some of the most horrible sexism I have ever seen in this country in print, and we permit it, not necessarily because she is a woman, but because she is a woman who does not intend to fit into any mold any man wants her to make or wants to make for her since her husband left office anyway. But remember the fallout we had when she was first lady, when she took on this role that Eleanor Roosevelt had 50 years before and all the men freaked out and said, no, no, you can't do that. No one elected her. And they made fun of her pantsuits and all that shit. And then you didn't see her for six years until the Lewinsky scandal, really. And she successfully pulled off this masquerade, this thing that men expect women to be, this outer person, not themselves. It's an act. A man expects this, and so... Whatever. You have to be that even though it's not who I am. That goes for gold diggers, and that goes for reality. Even gay men have to do that until they come out of the closet. This this masquerade, it, it merges the theatrical performance of what is going on and the deeper drama of what is going on. So if a woman wants to succeed in her dream, she has to masquerade, she has to play along and do what men expect her to do and what they expect her to be. And if that means that it's campy, like in Gold Diggers, then so be it. The question then is, can women pull this off? Can they pull off the masquerade and get what they want and still keep their integrity intact? And if they can do this, they become prostitutes. And if they do, then is it the men and their oppressive and unrealistic expectations of what a woman needs to be for them that forces women into these roles, forces them not just into the masquerade, but into prostitution. And at the same time, they condemn them for it. They say, well, you're the nicest actress I know, like Faneuil does in Gold Diggers. If they don't want women to be prostitutes, then maybe they should stop treating women like prostitutes. And look, just look how they're hiding Fanny's eyes here. That's the masquerade, and I hate to use that word, but that's what I see here. This whole scene with the fine dresses and the tuxedos and all the finery around, even the glasses. The only way the metaphor for the masquerade could be more overt is if they actually had masks on. Then the purpose of the scene could be complete, but as it is, it is suggestive enough. The masquerade is all about survival and it's cooked up not by the women who would be happy not to go along with it, but by the men. And how a woman worked during the depression was scrutinized because everyone was so desperate. Where is the line between unsuccessful and a successful masquerade? When is gold digging then called prostitution? When is this line blurred? When is it all then just the same thing? The only other film I remember that hits this point very subtly is Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette huge party scene in there with enormous dresses and masks. I think that's the direction that was going in. Who's a whore? 
Who's not? Who's really a whore? And why is Carol constantly threatening to break Faye's leg? Well, have you seen Showgirls? Yes, that movie with Elizabeth Berkley and Gina Gershon. Don't pretend like you haven't. Just admit it, and then you can remember that the surefire way to get rid of the competition in the showgirl business is to what? To break a leg. Ever seen Black Swan? Red Sparrow? One is overrated and the other is underrated, by the way. And though you might see a masquerade go on here in Gold Diggers, remember, the line blurs several times. Like when the girls say Brad is lying about the money and yet they're waiting on him to show up for it. The movie itself withholds any romantic links until after the show is a success, because before, there was no money to be had, but once the show is a hit, then hey, let's get romantic. The line here, a girl who is not cheap, not vulgar, what's he getting at? Not at all, like the people in the theater, he says. Like who? Like Faye Fortune? Are you calling Ginger Rogers a whore? And then the guy just storms out like some asshole. What did he think was going to happen? I didn't mean anything by it. Well, if you didn't mean anything by it, then why did you say it? While you have all these fake gold diggers going around the real one, Faye Fortune, she runs under the radar, so to speak. By this time, the couple start lining up. Polly and Brad are the young, innocent lovers. Carol and Lawrence are the mature sexual ones. Trixie and Faneuil are the older cynical lovers. But where is Faye? Well, Faye is bait, my friend. She's a lure. And every time you see her, what do you see? Light. All around her. They light her up like an angel. Even from the very first shot. If you were lucky enough to know your grandparents, then you probably have seen liquor cabinets like this one before. Mine had an enormous one like that. It's amazing what time does. Check out the huge V on the door in the background. It has reared its head before. I hate to make things out of nothing. I realize that sometimes a cigar is a cigar, but that V is awfully suspicious in that scene, just like the triangles we've seen before. Look at the gold glittering on her dress and on the candelabra in the background. It's not just this scene. And I know that this is a black and white film, but as the film starts, it seems very monotone, very silver, like it's supposed to be. But when you get to here and for the first part of the film, and then for the rest of the film, I mean, it's getting very easy to interpret the colors on the set. Obviously, it's meant to suggest gold. It goes with the title. Very clever production design. All right. He called her drunk. Remember... This is on the cusp of ending prohibition. Lots of legal issues here. So let's hope that they live happily ever after, shall we? I've never understood this type of love conflict. She said, stop, asshole. It reminds me of Deckard and Rachel and Blade Runner and just about every Sean Connery movie ever made when he tries to force himself on these beautiful women to kiss them and as if that's ever really a problem. But then the disturbing part is after they resist, like pussy galore, then they have to get around to liking it, and then they get into it. And that's sick. And here's another example of coitus interruptus, when he passes out, 
just like when the cops burst in on the scene in the first scene and then the real underhandedness comes out they want to put him in bed and make it look like he's had sex but he hasn't and what a side plot this is Trixie is even going to throw laundry on the bed to make it look like he's gotten into her panties and then the shocking thing is Brad goes right along with it he's perfectly fine with it and Lawrence is going to buy it hook, line, and sinker and I mean really by it. You see how they're both clad in gold here? Or at least they glitter like gold? It's that same theme that's repetitive. And you'll see it again and again. Now watch as Powell walks in here and you'll see a pretty amazing ensemble piece pretty much led by women. Women lead this film, and they're the target of this film. It's very strange. And now, we are led to a rather amazing plot development. Jay Lawrence, in the next scene, gives Carol a $10,000 check for, basically, not even for sex. And later, this is transferred into a wedding gift, if you can believe that. So I give you $10,000, and you become my wife. So I've purchased you or not my wife in this case. This is a capitalist exchange. Now, I'm a capitalist. I'm an author. I sell books to make money. I use this podcast to spread the word that I have a commodity to sell. We all do things for money. Most of us do things with our body to make money. Even if you're using your brain, you're using an organ to make money. But this, folks, this isn't capitalism. This is the failure of society to equalize class and gender. And this is not prostitution. That's a whole different argument, but it's perceived as prostitution. It's gold digging, which in my opinion is way worse than prostitution. But the point is, as long as you have this out, as long as you can buy pussy, the nation will be saved. And that's fucked up. So again, women are the commodities here to be bought and to be sold for male consumption. And whether he knows it or not, Brad is consenting to this when he puts his inheritance in front of the truth. He's going to let the lie stand so he can continue to get his payday. And look how pleased he is here. This issue is just as relevant now as it was then. Women have always been getting underpaid and, of course, $10,000 for not sleeping someone. Sure, I might be overpaying it, but there is a glass ceiling for the great majority of female producers, screenwriters, editors, directors, you name it. Patricia Mellencamp cites these amazing prices in film. Julia Roberts in 1990 charged $3,000 for a blowjob in Pretty Woman, telling every American girl just get on a bus and go to L.A. and you can blow up to 10 grand a night easy and eventually you'll find your rich man who will set you up. No problem. Uma Thurman got $40,000 a fuck in Mad Dog and Glory in 1993. Sarah Jessica Parker got 65000 in Honeymoon in Vegas in 1992. And of course, who can forget that Demi Moore got $1 million for sleeping with Robert Redford in Indecent Proposal. But just in case you think pussy pays well, don't forget that Elizabeth Berkeley and Showgirls in 1995 charged, and I quote, 50, comma, 
a hundred sometimes. We can go into this and into this, but the question at the end of the day is, do we make films in which women argue over the value of a man? Do we assign a dollar value to a man's penis? Do we write films in which the plot is auctioning off a man's sexual future? If we do not, then that pursuit is sexist, and so is the industry that supports it. Prostitutes are real people with real problems who make nothing and are treated like nothing. And Hollywood is more fascinated with what they do to prostitutes than to how to help them. Legalize it, tax it, put the power back into the pussy, and move on. But why does this notion of prostitution keep rearing its head in the film? It's raised so it can be dismissed. It's brought up to say, man, wow, these girls are acting like a bunch of hookers, aren't they? Then it proceeds to say, well, they're not. And to prove they're not, we're going to have a romance subplot. And we're expected to drop the idea that they're whores. So they bring it up to dismiss it. It's very odd. Here's the $10,000 check. And at the same time that we're dealing with the purchase price of pussy, we're also dealing with the stark fact that in 1933, 1993, and even today in 2018, women are simply not nominated for any film awards. No women have been nominated as directors for the 2018 Golden Globes. And among the women nominated, not a single woman of color was on the ballot for Best Actress. You'll notice, of course, that there are no women of color in 1933 when to be a, a liberal did not mean you believed in equality. Democrats lynched more people in the 1930s than Republicans have in the past century. Mellencamp actually stated that in 1992, the best woman's role was in The Crying Game, and the Oscar nomination for that role went to Jay Davison, a man. Look at this line. He's a sucker, a chump. So you can do a year-by-year -year breakdown on who's getting paid how much, and that would bore you to death. But for a contemporary situation, look at what happened to Michelle Williams and all the money in the world. Here's a situation where Ridley Scott's actor, Kevin Spacey, became toxic because of all of these sexual abuse allegations against him. And Scott decided to replace Spacey with Christopher Plummer, who was his initial choice for the role. Plummer has 22 scenes to shoot in 10 days, and Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams both agreed to come back and do reshoots. Wahlberg had in his contract a clause that said that he had approval if anyone in the film was to be replaced. He waived that approval in this case. He didn't argue with Scott, but it also meant that he would pick up $1.5 because of that clause. Now, this is very typical in Hollywood. You don't want to sign up for a film that you think has a certain cast and you get halfway through shooting and then all of a sudden the cast changes. What if they decided to cast for half the price? Then your lead actor is now in a film that's not as prestigious and he's worried about hurting his image. In this case, the replacement was Christopher Plummer, so he wasn't ever worried about that, I believe. This has been going on for 60 years, these clauses. Williams, by the way, had top billing, Plummer had second, and Wahlberg had third, so he has no hang-ups. Williams' contract was for $1,500. You can blame her or her reps, but that's what it was. Scott made the mistake of telling everyone initially that they did it for free. Well, no, per the contract, Wahlberg and Williams were paid. But then, 
this is not the case. That Wahlberg was paid. But then it gets out that this is not the case, that Wahlberg got paid a thousand times more than her and all hell breaks loose. And now Wahlberg is an asshole and he donates his share to the Me Too movement, but the damage is done. And in the middle of all of this, what is the whole fucking point? The idea that Spacey is the offender in this whole episode is lost. So what do we learn about all this? Well, to me, the moral of the story is sexual inequality doesn't help anyone. And check out the two dudes in bed here, and they're both in night clothes. And another thing you won't see in any film during the Hays Code era until the 1970s, really. Very strange. Very strange to think that it's strange. You didn't know there was so much going on on a Busby Berkeley dance number, did you? But there it is. There's a shitload here, like the $10,000 check. And you can see Berkeley's influence just cascade down through the film. And I'm not talking about just musicals. Watch Mel Brooks' History of the World Part 1. That's currently my son's favorite film. And his favorite piece in the film is The Inquisition, which is a Busby Berkeley number crossed with an Ethel Merman, complete with reverse slow-mo photography and a fully lit menorah. For those of you little achievers, there's the Big Lebowski, which completely hams up the Berkeley reputation. Watch how the girls spread their legs in this film, or in Footlight Parade even, then watch how they do it in The Big Lebowski. It's more than a comedy. It's more than camp. It's feminine sexuality, feminine power, in force, used in a very weird rejection of male patriarchy. I hope I can do The Big Lebowski one day, because that film is absolutely loaded with readings. And... In case you didn't catch it, yes, she framed the check. So we mentioned women as commodities, as mass-produced articles, and we mentioned how we see them as objects and not as people. And oddly enough, we see them as mechanical and technological, which is ironic considering society loves technology but does not want women to change. Not at all. There is a quest to find solutions to the depression that are alien but by now have become almost welcome. Unions and guilds were seen as communist and socialist, but they did proliferate in this period, especially in Hollywood. Much in the media by now is very working class, and films reflect that. This is the only decade that saw the Great Gatsby in decline, mind you. The rich were not welcome. The New Deal was an absolute socialist effort. There were federally funded corporations. Try pulling that off today even with a Democratic Congress, not going to happen. And you can see this in gold diggers. Bankers and lawyers and financiers are painted as evil, conniving men. So the title is a misnomer. It's misleading. The gold diggers are not the women. The gold diggers are the men. They construct these scenes of scopophilia. Broadway directors admit to this formula of a woman with a Six-inch wrist, remember a 12-inch neck, a 19-and-a-half-inch thigh, a 9-inch ankle. And, and who said you can't quantify beauty? Well, they've done it. And if that's what a Broadway is like, just imagine what it's like in Hollywood. And here we go. So what do you think about this? Is this a is this movie film or polemic we can read a lot of contemporary issues into this about women's rights, it's about women's pay the 
Me Too movement and all of that, but this was 80 years ago, and I'm guessing the intent of the producers is hard. This film is a critique of the capitalist system at the time, to be sure, but does it ditch capitalism? The storyline is definitely a criticism, but what about all the musical numbers? Even The Forgotten Man seems to support a capitalist system. Capitalism is presumed by some to be corrupt because it derives strength from exploiting the working man, but what system does not do that? Does communism not exploit the working man? Communism exploits the working man, then puts a bullet in his head and buries him in the gulag with his wife and three kids and all the relatives. And if you need any proof of that, then you need to read Coba the Dread by Martin Amis. This dress kills me here. It's bare in the middle, and if you didn't notice, there's no support. And Brad is dressed for a white wedding because he's the virgin, right? Not any of the girls, just him. Do you remember the strippers encased in the chastity belt-like metal costumes? Virginity is undone by men with can openers and transformed into the petals of a flower. Obviously, fetization, like Georgia O'Keeffe's flower, which would be of this time period, but she always denied that her stamens and petals were sexual. She thought that was bullshit. And here you have these angels sitting behind that window, and the window is more like a cage, like the chastity belts are, and then they have these halos around their waists that make them look more like flower petals. Lots of, lots of themes going on here. And what are they singing about? Springtime, the time for fucking. And she actually says, let me feel that I mean everything to you while his erection is pressed into her backside. Not making this shit up. By now you've seen the three couples go through these three stages of romance. Brad and Polly are young and innocent virgins. Lawrence and Carol are skeptical because they're older and Faneuil and Trixie have moved on past sex and are settling for companionship. And though the women are different ages, they are much closer in age than the men are. Brad and Faneuil are a half century apart. See how they look like petals in a garden here? Very clever. So let me bring the spring to you. That's the lyric. And now the staircase looks like some weird MC Escher drawing or ladies high heel in the next shot. I tell you, this shadow waltz sequence gets very weird. Don't get high and watch it. It's way too much. Now watch the same shot when they turn out the lights. And it's just more than a cool shot. It's these little violins, but they're so small and so squiggly. It's like they're little sperms wandering around trying to find eggs. I'm not making this shit up. Just look at it. And if you look at the shape they're making, doesn't it look like a rabbit? And even the ears are very noticeable in the feet. And what are rabbits known for? You've got it. Fucking. And where are the eggs? The ovals. They're nowhere to be seen. And as far as they lit up all these violins and they got the girls to swirl back and forth without tripping over chords, I don't know how they did this. Because this was back when... You know, batteries back then, they were all very expensive and very rare and twice as heavy. And the shot goes back into the light soon, and you're going to see tons of circles there just like before. But more importantly, the kaleidoscope is going to, to go in and out. Just, just take a look. And it starts with this one. And yes, of course, the obvious thing is the violins are supposed to look like women's bodies, but that's not original, and that goes without saying. So here's the weird oval contracting and constricting like some sort of Kegel muscle and obviously a flower. And then the lights go out again and the kaleidoscope comes into the dark and looks even more sexual, like some sort of dilation. 
and even the bows of the violins look like phalluses for a bit. And if I'm right about that, then this is a biological clock happening here, right? That's perfect filmmaking. It's a perfect clock. And into the folds of something fleshy you go in the, in the next scene, right? The, the lights are going to come back up. And then we're looking up the skirts of all of the dance girls, but not all the way. So we're going to tease you a little bit. And then this goes back to Petten in the Park where they did the same thing. And the dresses there are oval again, which is where the eggs reemerge out of the kaleidoscope. And then you're going to see, you know, watch the curvature here. There's this triangle, this very weird triangle that we make off of the mirror. And where does this all lead? Just follow the camera up in this amazing crane shot that's going to happen. And in the winter, let me bring my spring to you. Not very subtle, is it? And they're wearing the skull caps like they're going to go swimming in that flawless glass lake there. Oh, they're so in love and everything's going to be fine. And you could make this shot into a perfect gif. And then Dick Powell is going to sing, When in the spring I come to you. And then a white flower is going to be thrown into their faces like some sort of ejaculate right here. I mean, that's all very weird. But by the end of the film, things kind of turn on their head, right? Jay Lawrence is introduced as the Rockefeller type, right? This titan of industry who exploits the working man for profits. But by the end, we find out that this is just not true, that he's only the custodian of his parents' money. And Brad is the second son who would rather live in a rundown apartment and work on Broadway musicals than have anything to do with his family's money. Now, that's a Hollywood fallacy. I recently saw the same bullshit in that latest Tomb Raider movie, which, by the way, is not nearly as bad as people think. But it's in there, too. Poor Laura Croft won't sign her daddy's inheritance. That is supposed to point out how noble people are. Peabody himself is a man who has made money, yes, but not by exploiting it, but by rather telling people how to handle on what they have in a time when the depression was just ripping everything out of people's accounts. It was like a fucking plague. So in the end, they turn out to be nice, rich people, not shitting rich people, even though if you look at it, they do tend to have a narrow view of the world. But isn't that everyone? Surely the rich aren't exclusive to that idea. On the flip side, you have Barney, who who is broke, but like the girls, spends his time much like the girls trying to milk money out of their people. So we have a lot of falsehoods going on and the, the end, everyone gets together. So what do we have here? Is it about social injustice or financial inequity, or is it about romance? All of the storyline subplots, like how Lawrence thinks Carol is the woman his younger brother wants to marry and all these other little things going on. And some people have said, if you cut off all that shit, all the musical numbers, there'd be a coherent film. And others said, if you cut the storyline and put in more musical numbers, it would be 10 times better. So that's films for you. It's just as polemic as politics. And here you're gonna have another triangle. Lots of triangles in the film. And this sequence doesn't start out like the others, and you'll find that it doesn't end like the others, too, ostensibly. It's, it's about the World War I veteran, the Forgotten Man. But listen to the lyrics. When you forget the Forgotten Man, the soldier, you're also forgetting the woman he's in love with. If you don't 
take care of the veteran, you're not taking care of his wife or his daughter or his mother. And where does that leave society? And instead of starting off with faceless women, we're going to see a bunch of very individual looking faces, thin women. I mean, way thin, like starving, an old woman, a sad woman, and an African-American woman because black people exist in the Great Depression too. They were the first to suffer and they were the last to be helped by the war. And these images are remarkably reminiscent of Dorothea Lange's photography. She's the photographer who shot Migrant Mother and tons of other photos and Depression-era families, Okies, Blue Collar Poor. Walker Evans was another fine photographer of the era. Evans and Lang shot tons of poor rural women and made them immortal. And in a sense, they made the depression immortal. They made it approachable for future generations. They, what they made is possible. They made it possible for us to know what their suffering is like. We do remember them when we learn about them in school. Then later, like the veteran, we forget about them and we move on. And through this sequence, you'll see these demarcating wipes act like stage curtains to separate the acts of history. A line of wounded veterans transforms into a line of men, also veterans, queuing up for bread. But they're out of the army by then. You'll see a subtle trick in here where you'll see men in a bread line and later men in a uniform. And it gets dark, much darker than any other part of the film. And it reminds me a little bit of This is the Army by Ronald Reagan that he did in 1944. And during all this, keep in mind that in the theaters back in the 20s and the 30s, they were dark. They were much darker than they are now. And now we have OSHA and reflective strips and all of that. But back then, there was none of that. The ushers wore uniforms. I'm talking not polo shirts with name tags. I mean uniforms like bellhops and elevator operators. And they had the flashlights to take you to your seat because it was so dark. Even with the projector going, it was that difficult to see where you're going inside the theater. Then after the bread line, you're going to see another chorus line, the last one that moves in and just moves with the most amazing timing. And some would say that the chorus girls move with scientific efficiency, that Berkeley's girls are formations that have symmetry, like it's a machine, like kind of an assembly line in a factory. It reminds us of mass production of a kind of conveyor belt. It's not as blatant to say Chaplin in modern times going through the gears, but it does mimic what girls are to men. Just a series of parts. They're perfect, but they're anonymous. Maybe they are perfect because they are anonymous. And of course, they are commodities to be sold. So there is a capitalist critique to be seen here. The tapping of the feet on the chorus girls line is amazing. It's very precise, very mechanical almost like a typewriter, which most men didn't know how to operate in 1933. But most women did. Keeping that in mind, what do we know about technology? Or more importantly, what have we been taught about technology? Weren't you taught that technology and progress go hand in hand? That as we become more technologically advanced, we also become a more progressive society. And if that is the case, as you watch gold diggers and these cops take away this poor man, ask yourself in this age of technology, sound films, the telephone, the evolution of electricity, the efficiency of sound gramophones, ask yourself, was the right for women to vote in 1920? 
Was that right on time? Or was that just a little bit late? In the 30s, single women were still looked upon as spinsters. The leading codebreaker for the United States government in 1933 was a woman, Elizabeth Friedman, who had to balance her home life with her great sense of patriotism. Check out the SpyCast podcast for more on her, but what is the point in all of this? These women's bodies are part of a huge machine, just like a gear. They're a special effect, and they're meant to be kept in line and doing exactly what a man wants them to do. Look pretty. They serve a gendered master. And the whole show, the very impressive kaleidoscope that Berkeley gives us, and it is impressive, it's all a cover-up. You know, pay no attention to the male gaze. When we get into sexual politics like this, just like any other thing, you have to look at it from all sides. How often have you heard that the 50s were a terrible time because the men came home from the war and the women were all fired and had to go back into the kitchen and pump out babies for the man who took their jobs? I've heard that a lot. I've heard that all the time. And then I spoke to my grandmother, who had three children in 1939, 1943, and 1945, and she had to work during the war. Her husband, my grandfather, was off fighting in Europe. And when he came home, he literally took her job. It was a family company. She worked for her father. So she went home. First, they bought a starter home. Then they bought a 50s ranch-style house. And if you were to ask my grandmother what she thought about the 50s, she would have told you that it was the greatest time in her life raised kids, had her husband home. It was in between two horrible wars. She was the most feminine person I knew, and she saw nothing depressing about playing the housewife and the mother. In fact, she preferred it. That was the way she wanted it. And to her, the idea that she was somehow being enslaved was absolutely alien to her. She wouldn't hear of it. It was crazy. So just because you hear a narrative that is true, women's liberation, which is a real reaction to a real crisis in our society, don't think it's the only truth. My grandmother found great contentment in the 50s, and she hated the 30s. So as you watch this, keep that in mind, you could say that at first glance, that everyone in this situation got what they wanted. The women seemed to have been captured everything that they wanted, and the men seemed to be completely satisfied. That could be a reality that many people in the audience at the time that they thought when they saw this film and some people still to this day might see that the view is not necessarily wrong it's just one interpretation of this film and there's a reason of course we call it the end of the film the climax and the resolution everything seems to be resolved we even see how girls are people now do showgirls have hearts yes even they have hearts even hookers have hearts Thanks for hanging out with me while we watched Gold Diggers of 1933. I hope you found this interesting whether you watched with the commentary on in your home or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. The Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail and Joshua Cunningham. You can reach them both on SoundCloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdillandavis at gmail.com. 
If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at ThatDylanDavis and find my books on Amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in Mildred's Cafe.